0: Hey, this is the Forrest Buckner, and you're listening to Candlestick Chronicles.
2: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Candlestick Chronicles on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. My name's Chris Biederman. I cover the 49ers for the Sacramento Bee. I'm joined, as always, by Kyle Madsen, NinersWire.com of the USA Today Sports Media Group. Kyle, you got to do something cool last night. You got to go to the Golden 1 Center for the first time. Give me your, your quick Golden 1 Center take. Uh, it's beautiful. Okay, good. So, <laughs> <laughs>
3: it really it, it's a it's a great place to watch basketball. It's super open. The concourses are huge. Uh, there weren't a ton of lines. The crowd was active. Uh, it was it was a really good time.
2: Yeah, the Kings are a fun team. I, I really enjoy watching them, which is probably the first time I've been able to say that since the Chris Webber, flotte uh, Devox days back in back like a decade ago. But we're not here to talk about the Kings. Let's switch a conversation to the 49ers. And probably the, the biggest story in the NFL going on right now, outside of the playoffs and, and maybe all the coaching searches, there's there's been an Antonio Brown update. And we talked a lot about Antonio Brown and, and why it makes sense for the 49ers to, you know, to possibly trade for him if he is made available. Uh their team president, Art Rooney II, said yesterday on the record to the Pittsburgh Post Gazette quote, as we sit here today, it's hard to envision that uh, in terms of Brown returning to the team for training camp next summer. But he says there's no sense in closing the door on anything today. There's snow on the ground. We don't have to make those decisions right now. Um, it all sort of points to the facts or, or what's been reported widely that the Steelers are, are certainly considering training Brown. And obviously, you know, the 49ers would be a candidate just given their their needs at receiver his fit in Kyle Shanahan's offense. He's obviously Made it clear on social media that he would be interested in joining the 49ers. And, and Joe Staley sent him a, a hand waving tweet uh, yesterday or with a hand waving emoji to add fuel to that fire. Um, but I, I do want to remind people everyone who's, who's putting the cart before the horse and saying the 49ers are, are going to get Antonio Brown, there are going to be a ton of other teams interested. Um, and it's not up to Antonio Brown or Joe Staley or George Kittle, no matter what right. they do on Twitter. Um, if the Steelers trade him, they're, they're going to trade him for the best offer they can get. And the 49ers are going to have, it looks like they're at right now, they have six draft picks in the upcoming draft. Um, and I don't think they would trade their, their number two overall pick in the first round form. So then you look at other teams, you know, maybe the Raiders, they, I think they have three first round picks. They could probably offer more. Uh, in terms of, you know, short term picks, um, the Niners might be inclined to offer their 2020 first round pick. But, you know, as as well as adding Antonio Brown, as well as he would fit, um, I'm just not sure it's a slam dunk that the 49ers get him to yeah. be sure. There's probably going to be, you know, 25 teams making that phone call to the Steelers if they do decide he, he's available. So um, so that's just, you know, I, I, I want I think fans should, should exercise caution in terms of the excitement about the possibility of adding Antonio Brown um, as good as he would be in, in Kyle Shanahan's offense and, and playing with Jimmy Garoppolo.
3: Yeah, and, and the, the biggest thing about all the tweets from George Kittle and Richard Sherman and Joe Staley, those are good news because the biggest, I think, hang-up with the 49ers maybe acquiring Antonio Brown would be how he would fit in the locker room. And it appears, based on social media, that some of the locker rooms' leaders are are all about the move. Uh, so that that's what you can take from that. But but what you what you said is absolutely right with this not being up to Brown. However, Rooney coming out and saying that all options are on the table, I think at least starts the bidding a little bit lower,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if anything he says publicly is really going to change the market in terms of like what they're, w- they're going to be asking for. I think uh, people within the league know exactly what the yeah, deal is, regardless yeah, of whether Rooney talks on the record about it or not. Um, so, you know, I, I, I just think the, the Steelers are opening a bidding war. And, and while the 49ers do make sense, I'm not sure they could offer the most desirable package. Unless they really want to mortgage the future by doing something like including that number two overall pick, which I can't really see. And the the other thing that, that needs to be factored into this, it seems like the most likely window for him to get traded would be before that two and a half million dollar roster bonus vests uh, on March seventeenth, and the new league year begins March twelfth. So you really have a five day window to make that trade uh, to make that trade work financially before the Steelers would have to give Brown a two and a half million dollar bonus. Um, And that's not, obviously, that's not a huge thing, but that's well before the draft. So for the 49ers, if they're thinking about, you know, maybe trading down from two, acquiring more first round picks, potentially to use in an Antonio Brown trade, they're going to have to do it within that window. And obviously that's, you know, that's going to start now. Those discussions with other teams might be starting now. But the point is to get Antonio Brown, it's going to take a lot uh, just because he's going to be such an in-demand player. Because he's so affordable over the next few seasons, uh, you know, he's he's on a very affordable contract. He's not going to be, uh, you know, his his cap number is going to be just over 15 million in 2019, just over 11 million in 2020, and then 12 and a half million in 2021. That's super affordable and much, much, much cheaper than you would get Brown if he was just a free agent on the open market. Which leads me to believe any team needing a receiver with draft picks like the Raiders uh, would be able to throw a lot more at the Steelers than than the 49ers. All right, so why don't we look at the coaching cycle and how the 49ers are sort of tied to some of these new coaches being put in new spots. And, And I think we have to start with former 49ers defensive coordinator Vic Fangio going to the Broncos from the Bears. Uh, obviously he was with the 49ers for four seasons. They ranked fourth, third, fifth and fifth in total defense when Fangio was our coordinator and they had a ton of talent. And then he, he replicated that success, particularly last year with the bears after they got Khalil Mack. They were the third ranked defense overall first in scoring. Um, having covered Vic Fangio for, for three of those seasons, I, I think he is definitely going against the grain a little bit in terms of that CEO type that, that people want. Um, he's, he's honest, he's, he's been described as gruff. I think I would agree with that. Um, I wouldn't call him a people pleaser by any means. I, I think he's just a matter of fact, football coach who doesn't really spin things. And if someone is screwing up, he's not afraid to say it publicly. And I think that's something that the 49ers didn't necessarily love while he was there. Um, and one of the reasons why, they didn't hire him uh, in 2015 when, when they were looking for a new coach. And obviously, Jed York was, had already decided on Jim Tomsula well before that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I do think Vic is probably one of the two or three best defensive coordinators in the NFL. But one thing I will say about his time with the 49ers and one thing the 49ers didn't love about Fangio either was they, they didn't really develop much young talent on defense aside from those really good players who were already in place. Right. Um, and and I think I don't know that that's necessarily Fangio's fault. I know you know Trent Balky was picking those players, and the reason why Trent Balky was fired three years later was because of his inability to restock the roster after a lot of those players from those contending teams left. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really know exactly where to put the blame. I, I tend to put it much more on Balky than I would Fangio, just given Fangio's overall track record and body of work. But I think it's a really good hire for the Broncos, particularly with, you know, Von Miller already already there, Bradley Chubb already there. He has two really good outside edge rushers that he'll be able to build that defense around. And he's going to have Gary Kubiak running the offense, it sounds like, who's, you know, obviously an established coordinator for the Broncos, former head coach, won a Super Bowl with them in 2015. So I, I really like the Fangio hire. What what are your thoughts on, on Vic becoming a first-time head coach, Kyle?
3: Yeah, I think it's been well earned, and they certainly have the personnel to to put together a dominant defense. And we saw the Broncos just a couple of years ago ride right, a dominant defense to a Super Bowl. And I I'm not sure if this this version of that that unit is as talented. Is that one in what was it 2015, 2016,
0: 2015?
3: Yeah, it's a couple of years ago. Um, I'm not sure if this this unit's as talented, but. I think Fangio is going to really maximize what they do have. And I think this this signals a little bit of a shift. And I think we'll get into this a little later with some of the the other hires. But it looks like teams are, with their head coach, prioritizing one side of the ball. And then the Broncos are bringing in Gary Kubiak as well to, to run the offense. And they're effectively saying, okay, we're going to hire Vic Fangio. We're going to, we're going to give him a promotion to get him away from Chicago but he's only going to really run the defense and be the kind of guy who talks to the team. But Gary Kubiak is going to take care of the offense and we're going to try and put together uh, this really great defensive unit and enough offense to go win.
2: Yeah. So, so let's move on to, to the other guys getting hired and and a lot has been made of, you know, teams trying to find the next Sean McVay. And I think that's an interesting uh, idea or notion because you look at Sean McVay, he was a disciple of Kyle Shanahan, really. And McVay was an offensive coordinator uh, for you know, not very long, I think a season or two in Washington before he got the head coaching job uh, with the Rams. And, and I think there, there's sort of a pattern forming when, when you look at this coaching cycle w- with Matt LaFleur joining the Packers. He only called plays for one season in Tennessee as the offensive coordinator. Like you mentioned, he was the, he was the offensive coordinator by name only with the Rams before going to Tennessee before last season. And he's a guy who was with Kyle Shanahan with, t- with the Houston Texans in 2008 and 2009 before joining him with Washington mm-hmm. um, as a quarterback's coach those four years under Kyle Shanahan. And then he came back and was also the quarterback's coach with the Falcons those two seasons when Kyle Shanahan was coordinator there. And now he's going to work with Aaron Rodgers. So having just one season calling plays and really being a true offensive coordinator along with, you know, Freddie Kitchens going to the Browns was only uh, an offensive coordinator for like half the season. Cliff Kingsbury is only a college coach. Uh, and not and even a good one. <laughs> record-wise, certainly not a good one. We can talk about that too. But well, when I look at these guys having very minimal experience as an offensive coordinator before landing these head coaching jobs, I, I sort of go to, go to the idea that OK, teams are teams obviously need to prioritize a quarterback position. And, th- and that's obviously the most important on the on any organization. But so they're taking these probably the, the most coveted offensive coordinators and saying, all right, we're going to make you our head coach now rather than try to give you a coordinator job where if you were to do really well in your one season as a coordinator, then some other team a year from now will snatch you up and make them your head coach. So what these teams are doing are getting these guys in the building and, and just banking on their futures a little bit less than you know their, their ability to be a good head coach right now.
3: Well, the Packers didn't even wait for Matt LaFleur to be a successful coordinator. The, the Titans interviewed him for their head coaching job. He didn't get it, but they hired him as their, their OC as, as a play caller, which is a step up from his gig with the Rams. The Titans' offense was not good this year. And part of it was because of, of injuries to Marcus Mariota and what have you, but the Packers just went for it. They didn't even wait for, for LaFleur to, to be good or a highly sought after candidate. And that that is the most extreme example, I think, of, of what you were talking about. And teams are just trying to take these big swings because finding a guy like Sean McVeigh, I guess, or, or even Doug Peterson in Philly, uh, whose name doesn't get brought up enough that can, that can just dramatically change your franchise um that that's something i think that's worth it for for teams
2: and it'll be interesting too because the niners are going to play the packers next year uh they're going to play the browns and and freddie kitchens and and obviously he had a ton of success with baker mayfield in the second half of the season even though the browns didn't make the playoffs um kingsbury i'm I'm sort of fascinated by you know (laughs) there a, a lot of people made made a lot of the uh the mention of his relationship with Sean McVay by the Cardinals PR staff in their announcement of of hiring Kingsbury That's so which, funny which is really funny and and obviously these are all guys you know offensive minds young with short well-trimmed beards who are you know handsome and and all that and Kingsbury sort of typifies that but you know when, when he was re- he really made a name for himself working with Patrick Mahomes right who obviously turned out to be a pretty good pro quarterback he's probably going to win the mvp this year but you know the texas tech they he went 35 and 40 in his four seasons there but they ranked fourth in offensive efic- offensive efficiency in those two seasons with mahomes at quarterback so I, I have I honestly have no idea how this is gonna work out. I, I was a big Josh Rosen fan before the draft last year. I thought he had a real good chance to be the best quarterback of that class. I think last year in Arizona was was sort of a dumpster fire with Steve Wilkes, who obviously they fired after one season and they're gonna have the first overall pick in the in the upcoming draft after going three and thirteen. Um, but we have no idea if Kingsbury is is has the qualities of, of a good coach, or if he's just somebody who sort of fits the template of young offensive mind who who has a history with some of these big name quarterbacks.
3: Yeah, that that, that's, that is going to be more the norm, I think. I wouldn't be surprised if next hiring cycle, we see Lincoln Riley out of Oklahoma become that highly sought after candidate that a team takes a giant swing on. Obviously, the season has to play out. We have to see what jobs are open, but with the way teams are being built now and how much money quarterbacks are starting to make, you can't afford to blow a quarterback's first four or five years where you get them for cheap. It, it, the The Cardinals have this finite window where Josh Rosen doesn't cost them a lot of money and they can pay other talent to come in and, and build a contender. And you can't afford to wait around. And they're they're taking a big swing with Kingsbury in hopes that... that Rosen develops and they can turn into an overnight contender kind of like the Rams did.
2: So between LaFleur, Kitchens and Kingsbury, those guys have a season and a half combined of experience calling plays in for an NFL offense. And Kyle Shanahan was an offensive coordinator for 10 years before he got the Niners job. Yeah. Which which is I mean it's it's just wild to think about just the the way teams how eager teams are to get that kind of coach because they look at the way the league is going with the shift in rules, um, obviously favoring the offense and and everything like that. So uh, I well, guess, and go,
3: go ahead. Just just look at, look at when we bring up quarterbacks and the importance of developing quarterbacks. The Broncos have Case Keenum. Case Keenum is who he is. So they hired Vic Fangio, because we saw Keenum take a really good defense in in the with the Vikings to an NFC Championship game, so they're trying to build up that defense behind Case Keenum. Lafleur with the Packers, he's going to hopefully revolutionize their offense for uh, not not revolutionize modernize their offense for Aaron Rodgers, but then you've got Freddie Kitchens who has a young quarterback he's working with. Cliff Kingsbury, young quarterback he's working with. Adam Gase, young quarterback he's working with. Bruce Arians, going to try and salvage uh, their former number one overall pick in his fifth season. Uh, the Dolphins wouldn't be surprised if they hire a guy um, who who uh, they think can either work with Ryan Tannehill or if they draft a quarterback that that guy can then develop. Uh, there's a, there is a theme here. And I, I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon.
2: Yeah. And, and Arians is the other one we should mention just because the Buccaneers are on the 49ers schedule next year, too. Um, and that's a road game. And I, I have a hunch. I'm not positive, but I, I think uh, the Buccaneers are slated to have a, a home game in London next year. And I think that the 49ers might be going to London uh, to play that game. I'm not positive. Um, But we'll have to see. So why don't we with that, why why don't we go forward and and talk a little bit about uh, what the 49ers need this this offseason? And and I think we have to start like, you know, with edge rushers and and with Cassius Marsh and Ronald Blair and and these guys, I, I just don't, you know, despite having relatively, you know, decent sack numbers between those guys, I think Ronnie Blair and Cassius Marsh both had five and a half this season. The 49ers obviously need more. They need more to, to complement DeForest Buckner. They need more to bother quarterbacks and get them to throw interceptions. They need more force fumbles. Uh, they need more sacks, obviously. They need to be better better on third down and they need to be better in the red zone defensively. And and we've talked about it ad nauseum. Uh they just need edge rushers, and I think that is their has to be their top priority. And and when you talk about or when you think about what they're going to do with that number two overall pick, I think that's has to be where it starts.
3: Edge rusher is so much their top priority that if they signed an edge rusher in free agency and then drafted one at number two, it would make sense. Absolutely. And, and, and or if they didn't get one in free agency because good edge rushers don't usually uh, hit the market, if they drafted edge rushers in each of the first two rounds, it would, it would just make like, it would be fine.
2: Yeah. They, they so
3: desperately need playmakers there. And we've seen how important it is. John Lynch has talked a lot this, uh, during this season, how important it is. He said that they had a better offer for Khalil Mack than the bears did. They were very aggressive trying to get him. And then Kyle Shanahan compared an edge rusher to a quarterback in terms of their importance to, to their side of the ball and how much of an impact they can have on the game. So it, it certainly sounds like that's, that's uh, where they're going to go in the draft, and I, I think that's smart because it's obviously their, their biggest need.
2: Yeah, you talk about edge rushers in free agency. I, I think about Brandon Graham, the Eagles defensive end, uh, went to Michigan way back in the day, just a really productive player, a good veteran, somebody who would make sense just in terms of their cap structure, their culture, uh, depth. Uh, he could possibly play Sam linebacker and also put his hand in the dirt on either side. Be a Leo, um, what have you? I think he would be a good player to to think about. Also, I mean, when you're talking about the draft, and and we're going to talk about these two guys ad nauseum, and I think we already have too. Just Josh Allen of Kentucky, the the super athletic outside linebacker, um, and Nick Bosa. If somehow he he isn't you know, he isn't the first overall pick, uh, which actually, and I guess that, that could switch to the discussion a little bit to Kyler Murray and, and him coming out the Oklahoma quarterback, who obviously was a first round draft pick of the Oakland A's and who, uh, Susan Slusser, of the San Francisco Chronicle reported, uh, this week that Murray was going to, was going to uh, enter the NFL draft. And so I honestly haven't watched a ton of Oklahoma, but, um, a lot of people are talking about him being a first round pick. And, and I just remember, you know, where the discussion was surrounding Baker Mayfield at this point last year and, and Mayfield sort of throughout the season was like, well, he's a little bit smaller. Maybe he's a Russell Wilson type second or third round pick. And then when, you know, with with the way the NFL is shifting and there's such a focus on accuracy and moxie, uh, and just being a leader and, and things like that, which, which Mayfield obviously is that trumped the whole size thing. People are looking less at, the prototypical six foot four, two hundred and twenty five pound rocket arm quarterback. They're m- looking more at you know accuracy, how well somebody can run an offense, um, and and if that player can galvanize a team. And and that led to Mayfield getting picked first overall by the Browns. And maybe you know there's a chance at least that Kyler Murray can be that type of player. I, some I forget who who it was who said it. I I think it's a, a lot of people have said this actually that. Kyler Murray is a smaller, faster Russell Wilson. And if he is as good at as a passer as Russell Wilson, then you ab- absolutely have to consider him first overall. Um, yeah. Maybe not for Arizona, even though Cliff Kingsbury did say while he was at Texas Tech before playing Oklahoma that he would take Murray with the first overall pick. But, I mean, the the Cardinals, you know, they, they could absolutely trade back to a quarterback needy team who wants that first overall pick. Uh, potentially, that player could be Murray. And then the 49ers would be sitting pretty at number two with with their choice of pass rushers there. And I happen to think it would probably be Nick Bosa.
3: Yeah, there are there are a couple of scenarios out there right now that that does have Nick Bosa falling to number two. And that would just be that would create a fascinating uh, dilemma for the 49ers between him and him and and Josh Allen just because their skill sets are, as we talked about last, last podcast, their skill sets are so different, but they're both very, very effective players. So it would be very funny to me if after all of this hand wringing over the 49ers winning a couple games and not getting the number one pick, if they wound up getting to take Nick Bosa anyways, that would be
2: really funny to me. I would like that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be uh yeah. Winning is important. Winning games is important. I, I'd, it's, it's easy to say on the outside that winning costs you winning costing you draft positioning is a terrible thing but I, winning means a lot to these players and I can't tell you how miserable all everyone just in the entire organization would have been if they didn't win a couple of those games um, yeah so let's go on the the next need that the 49ers have they they need playmakers in the secondary and mm-hmm. I, I think that includes that we're, we're casting a wide net that includes all positions um, I would say you know, they could use a free safety. Uh, they could use a strong safety. They could use more depth and competition at cornerback. Obviously, Richard Sherman isn't is is long in the tooth and isn't going to be around forever. Um, and I think at free safety has to start with targeting Earl Thomas, the the Seahawks all pro and, and arguably one of the best players at his position of the last generation. Um, he he's coming off a broken leg, but it it all looks like uh, he's he's out of Seattle, um, and that was apparent when he when he sh- showed a middle finger to the to the Seahawks sideline after breaking his leg in Arizona <laughs> earlier last season. So I would start with with that. The 49ers are going to have at least you know sixty two million uh, in cap space, and if Eric Armstead doesn't come back, and that's a nine nine and a half million dollar decision, uh, if he doesn't come back and they decide not to to guarantee his fifth year option. Uh, that'll give them uh, over seventy million dollars in cap space, and and that would give them the freedom to pay Earl Thomas, you know, tw- twelve million, thirteen million dollars a year for the next you know two or three seasons. So I, I think that would make a ton of sense. Uh, he would he would help them turn the ball over at the back end for sure, and I think he would he would fortify the secondary in the sense that you know I happen to think Adrian Colbert might be best as your third safety somebody who you can use as a gunner on special teams and and just have you know have depth at that position rather than relying on him to start because because Colbert is a guy who who hasn't made an interception yet. Uh he played he played really well late in the season as a rookie, but really struggled uh the beginning of last year. I think, you know, I, I don't know if the 49ers can credibly rely on Jakowski Tart, who's missed 15 games over the past two seasons with with different injuries, he had a shoulder stinger that he suffered in Week One last year, and and it was really an issue throughout the entire season. Uh, he broke his forearm in, in twenty seventeen, missed the second half of that season. Um, and Marcel Harris might be might be someone worthy of you know the rookie sixth round pick from Florida last year. He might be somebody who's worth throwing into that discussion. But I think, and we've mentioned this before. If if you're counting on Marcel Harris to to potentially be a starter next year, you're you might be repeating your mistake of overvaluing a small sample size that these guys right. put on tape when they were when they were rookies. So um, you know, I, I don't know that with with Tart and Harris, I think, you know, that they, they have decent talent and, and competition there, but I don't know that either of those guys represents a long-term answer in terms of somebody you can just insert as a starter for the next four years and, and feel really good about it.
3: Yeah, I think they're certainly in a better position now than they were at the end of last year or, or going into last year. But I, I agree with you 100%. They, they need to add some competition there because I don't think that even playing at their best, that any of the combination of safeties they have are, are the answer long term. So so adding adding players there or or even at cornerback because cornerback they're they're running into the same issue of of okay maybe they have somebody there but bringing in additional talent certainly would not hurt because they they have no proven commodities in, in the back end.
2: Yeah, you have Akella Witherspoon and, and Tavarius Moore who who have upside as prospects and Witherspoon will be entering his third season, Moore will be will be entering his second season. And they have all the traits the 49ers want, right? They're tall, they're long, they're both fast, they have good feet. Uh, Moore might be a lo- might, Moore might have a little bit more physical upside, uh, but he's a little more raw at the position after playing safety in college. And, and I think he played pre- pretty well after taking over the last couple games uh, late in the season. But like I said, there's there's no guarantee that either of those guys are starters that you could credibly rely on. And you also have to worry about possibly replacing Richard Sherman down the road. So it wouldn't surprise me if the 49ers drafted another cornerback, it not, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I just wonder if, if Moore and Witherspoon are good enough in the eyes of the organization to that, they, they can use, you know, a second or third round pick, assuming they go edge rusher in with the, in the first round. Um, you know, are they going to invest a premium, a premium asset on a cornerback? You no, know, with those two guys already in tow. And moving on to, to the third need the 49ers have, we've mentioned Antonio Brown a lot. I think it, it has to be receiver. And, you know, Pierre Garçon is certainly no lock to return. He, he wasn't particularly effective last season. And then he ended the year on injured reserve to have arthroscopic knee surgery. Uh, Marquise Goodwin, has been in the league for six seasons, and he's really only been good for one of them. I don't know that the 49ers can count on him to to be a surefire, productive starter. Uh, I think Goodwin can certainly be a third receiver, or number two receiver on a good receiving core. But if if Garcon is gone and your top two guys are, are Dante Pettis and Marquise Goodwin, I just think you really should be in the market for, for another option there, particularly if you want to compete With offenses like the Rams and and the Saints if you really want to take yourself seriously as a playoff contender in the NFC. So I think receiver would be would be way high up there. And I think one of the reasons why we've mentioned this before, but one of the reasons why Antonio Brown has been bandied about so much for the 49ers is because there aren't a ton of avenues to add number one receivers in the NFL this offseason. Those guys aren't really there in free agency. And it, it doesn't really look like that there's going to be, you know, a, a real number one type receiver in this draft and maybe the 49ers find somebody early in the second round um but but I think just just overall the the dearth of available wideouts this offseason is, is, is the is t- the is the main reason why, you know, Antonio Brown it seems like a real possibility and and one of the only avenues to to add that sort of game-changing talent on offense.
3: Yeah, and it was apparent throughout this season that the 49ers need a player like that. It, it shows in their red zone numbers. They don't have a go-to target there. And we saw multiple teams just take George Kittle away because the 49ers didn't have anybody else who, who was a real threat. So teams could devote a ton of defensive resources to stopping the tight end. And it, it was it was in that Giants game for me that it became extremely apparent in the second half when, when I don't think Kittle had a target or he might have had one catch in the second half. He was super unproductive. And it was really apparent to me then that the Niners need a a bona fide number one type of receiver, a a big body that they can go to and in third down and in the red zone. And maybe that's not available in this year's draft, but I I certainly think that they chase a player like that and and use a, a day two or early day three pick on one.
2: Okay, so let's move on. Need number four we're going to say inside linebacker. And I think it's pretty obvious after you lose someone like Reuben Foster midway through the season, a former first round pick, a starter, a key building block to that defense going forward. He's no longer there. And uh, the 49ers, they they do have some depth there, but I don't know that they have a real number one starting option. I think Elijah Lee, a former sixth round pick, or sixth or seventh round pick of the Vikings, I don't even remember, out of Kansas State. Um, he played well and, and the 49ers defense certainly improved overall as a unit late in the year, but I don't know if you can, if if you can go into next season penciling in Elijah Lee as your starter at, at will linebacker and feeling good about it. Malcolm Smith, the, the guy the 49ers brought in before 2017 to be their will linebacker might not be back. Uh, he's just been injured and unproductive since, since joining the 49ers and they would probably want to move off of his cap number. So, you know, that leaves Brock Coyle, who suffered a season-ending sh- shoulder and neck injury in the season opener against Minnesota. Uh, he'll be coming back, but I certainly don't think the 49ers can bank on him uh, as a real starter. And I know they love him on special teams and just sort of what he brings to the room. But I think he's he's better off as your third or fourth linebacker. Um, so I, I do think they need a starter. And, and I think that that conversation should probably be centered on, when at, when it comes to free agency, the Seahawks. I know he's a veteran, but the Seahawks, uh, KJ Wright, who I, who's going to be, uh, I think he's already thirty, and um, and just his fit in the scheme, his leadership qualities, his uh, his familiarity with Robert Sala, it all makes a bunch of sense. And maybe an older guy, uh, who who would also make sense for similar reasons, is Thomas Davis, uh, the the longtime hmm. Carolina Panther. Who won't be back with the Panthers next season? They they announced that this week. Um, so in terms of culture uh, and locker room fit and all that, and and the you know adding another leader on defense, Thomas Davis certainly exemplifies that. And he's a former Walter Payton Man of the Year. Uh, he's been a, a part of that defense, a really really good Carolina defense for a long time. And obviously he's aged a little bit, but if you're just bringing if you're bringing in a veteran who you could have probably at a, at a reasonable cost. And like we said, the Niners are going to have, you know, 62 million, maybe even 70 million in cap space, depending on their Eric Armstead decision. Um, I think that could make some sense. If you get Thomas Davis to, to provide, you know, be a mentor to Fred Warner and then maybe a draft pick. If, if you go that route uh, in the draft.
3: Yeah. And I, I think they, they do go that route. Maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit later in the draft in the middle to late rounds. But I I do think they have to get an influx of young talent there. Elijah Lee, like you said, played well this year, but is he the long-term answer? Probably not. Uh, So I think they, they do go that way in the draft and finding a player. I I think Wright and, And Davis are two really good names to, to plug in and, and play at least one season while they, while they try and develop somebody, somebody younger behind them.
2: Okay. So let's go to the last Need number five. Um, I think we went back and forth on this a little bit. We couldn't really decide that the Niners could use, I mean, they're going to have to get a replacement for Joe Staley at some point. The problem is, is they, they clearly have more pressing needs on the roster and more than likely aren't going to use the, the asset that it would really take to find Staley's replacement, which, which would be, you know, a first round pick or maybe even a second round pick at tackle. And it just wouldn't be super prudent because you're going to have Staley back at least for one more year. But it is something that they have to consider uh, because if 2019 is in fact Staley's last season, then you're going into 2020 absolutely needing to land uh, another tackle. Whether or not you switch Mike McGlinchey to the left side or you keep him on the right side where he's played well, and then find another left tackle, Uh, the 49ers uh, at some point are going to have to find Staley's replacement. So that's. That's something, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's probably too soon to start thinking about that right now just based on Staley being there, but it but it has to be on your radar. Um, so maybe you do draft a, a tackle in the middle round, somebody that you think has a lot of upside uh, that you might have to develop. Um, but the other, the other need I think they have, and, and we talked about the 49ers' struggles in the red zone. They were the worst red zone offense in the NFL last year in terms of scoring touchdowns. And I think it's no coincidence that they also – had the fewest rushing touchdowns in the NFL last year. Uh, I think they could use a big, bruising running back, someone like uh, you know, maybe like a Legarrette Blunt type, or or what what they envisioned Alfred Morris to be. You know, early in the season, uh, just sort of a short yardage guy who who can complement uh, Matt Breida and Jarek McKinnon, guys who are you know about 200, 205 pounds, and and I think they just need somebody you know on third and two. If they that can give them the opportunity to run the ball because I don't know that necessarily Breida and McKinnon are, are the best types of running backs for that and and I think that showed up last year that not them not having that type of big bruising running back.
3: I think uh, when, after hearing what, what you had to say about the running backs, I think you have to put that ahead of finding Staley's replacement because if you go all in this year to to plug some of the other major holes in the roster, you can afford to probably go first-round pick on a tackle next year if you if you invest all your resources into other spots this year. So uh, I think you table the the Staley replacement for now, uh, and, and I'm right there with you on, on the running back issue. Uh, they It felt like they got inside the five so many times this year and could not punch it in. You had an Alfred Morris fumble at the goal line, and when they did score, on running plays near the goal line, it always felt like something tricky or some kind of uh pre-snap motion that that got them into the end zone. So yeah, just a just the kind of running back who gets 50 or 60 carries and scores five or six touchdowns would be a uh would be a nice, nice addition to their roster. And maybe Jeff Wilson is that guy. But <clears throat> if they went out and, and tried to find a player like that this offseason, it would, it would certainly help.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's down on the list of needs for sure, but it's something that they need to think about, and and that just goes with improving in the red zone overall. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. Just just somebody who can make it easier on you know, so you don't have to get ultra creative, uh, so you can get a yard and a half when you need a yard, uh, without you know without just trying to shove Matt Breida or uh, or Jarek McKinnon up the middle. But um, I think that's it. Five needs for the 49ers this offseason edge rushers playmakers in the secondary a number one receiver potentially uh, an inside linebacker and a running back that could help in the red zone and or a uh, a potential long-term replacement for Joe Staley because that's going to be a big issue going forward I think that wraps it up Kyle Uh, thank you for listening to Candlestick Chronicles on the Blue Wire Network please subscribe rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and we are out